Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the ongoing stories that has been happening for a few weeks now is that of the Central American migrant caravan that it's making its way from Honduras. There's members from Guatemala and El Salvador as well. The Trump administration is planning to dispatch about 800 or more active duty troops to the southern border to help stop the flow of migrants into the country. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis is expected to sign an order sending the troops to the border, bolstering the National Guard forces that are already there. The additional troops would provide logistical support to the Border Patrol. The plan has not yet been finalized or formally announced, but it is expected to happen. For more on the migrant caravan, we spoke to Ted Hess, and he's an immigration reporter for Politico. And we started off by talking about the president's reaction to the caravan and the implications for the midterm elections. We've seen the president talk tough on this issue, and this is nothing new. I mean, this goes back to the last time there was a caravan back in April. I mean, I think the one difference we have here is we're now at the doorstep of November's midterm elections, and this is a political issue for him, obviously. He really wants to make it about his policies and need for a border wall versus what the Democrats stand for, what he characterizes as open borders. He's saying that these countries, you know, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, they're not doing enough to keep these people there. I know Mexico's National Guard, there are so, you know, some military guys, they put up a road blockade at one point, but then they tore it down right away. I guess maybe there was too many people or they knew they weren't going to be able to handle it. The countries are doing something, maybe just not enough. And like I said, now he wants to start cutting aid. I think last year, these three countries had more than a combined $500 million in funding from the U.S. I think so far this year, it's been about $200 million. The aid has been shrinking in recent years to begin with. Back in 2017, it was somewhere around $700 million to mostly to these three Central American countries, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And then in 2018, down to $615 million. And now it's been proposed by both the House and the Senate to bring it down somewhere in the $500 million range. And the, and, and the Trump administration was actually asking for even lower, somewhere in $400 million. So even before all this happened, President Trump was already proposing to cut aid to these Central American countries. So that in itself is nothing new. I mean, what is interesting, though, is that he doesn't really have the power to do that on his own. I mean, right. these, these are bills passed by Congress, and Congress will consider what amount to give in Central American aid when the time comes. And the president being very forceful on this stuff does give some political cover to Republicans who have to push this through because the Democrats are going to be on the opposite side of it. With regards to the midterms, you know, he's saying whenever you see these people come across and these criminals and unknown Middle Easterners and everything, keep the Democrats in mind. We have to change our crappy immigration laws. So he makes it about the midterms and everything, and he provides a little cover by being forceful. But is there that much political will on the part of Congress to do something? I, I mean, there was some immigration bills that tried to pass this past year, and none of them went through, even some of the ones that the White House was backing. I mean, I think you really need to consider uh, his words in the context of where we are right now and only being two weeks away from the midterm. 
And I think this is an issue that is really important to Republican voters. It, it seems like it's going up in interest in recent weeks and less so for Democrats, essentially as a way for them to mobilize their base to get them out to the polls. Now, whether any of these proposals, you know, border wall, slashing funding to Central America, rewriting asylum laws, I mean, these are all really big projects. And even maybe a year ago, a little less than a year ago, when Congress was working in a bipartisan fashion to address them, they really struggled to do so. And uh, they weren't able to advance any legislation. And the White House opposed the bills that had the most support. So it's hard to imagine that after the midterms with Democrats likely to take back some ground in the House, if not win it entirely, that they'd come back to the table and work out a better deal. What has been the reaction from the leaders of these countries, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador? I know the Mexican, the incoming Mexican president has suggested that the U.S., Canada and Mexico work out some funding development for poor areas of Central America and Southern Mexico. What are these companies trying to do to reduce this type of migration? The presidents of the, the Northern Triangle countries were up in Washington, D.C. not too long ago for a summit that was convened by the U.S. and Mexico jointly to talk about these very issues. And, you know, for the most part, they're open to cooperating on security issues, but there are clearly limitations. And in some cases, those are economic limitations and not having the funding to do it. And as I mentioned before, with U.S. funding is being cut towards these kind of projects in Central America right now. And then in other cases, it's political and it's because of political instability in their home country. I mean, Honduras in particular is an example where... Um, the president there, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is a strong U.S. ally, but won a narrow re-election and doesn't really have much of a mandate to govern. You definitely have different situations in each country and different capacities as to how they're able to address this. Ted Hessen, immigration reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. An interesting story that came across our radar this week was about youth hostels expanding in the United States, but they're shedding their old identities. They don't want to be called hostels anymore. It's a shift in the fast-growing hotel industry that's making its way away from its bare-bones past of traditional hostels. They're adding more private rooms, some with established hotel brands. They're shrinking room sizes. They're putting more focus on bars and food to target millennials and betting that young travelers are going to pay a higher price for the bar and food offerings while paying lower prices for the bed. So I brought in my producer, Miranda, to talk about one of the leaders in these hotel-hostel hybrids. There's this London-based hospitality group called Generator, and they just opened their first U.S. property in Miami Beach last month. This is the first time that this company has made their dorm room-like accommodations outside (laughs) Europe for the first time ever. And they kind of get irritated if you call them hostels because they said that the hostel thing doesn't describe them that way. That their Miami property has more private rooms than the dorm room settings, like bunk beds that you were describing. Yeah, they want to be placed in this space between a hostel and a cool boutique hotel. Yeah, and they do look like a cool boutique hotel. If you go on their website, the rooms look beautiful. And I was looking at some of the options because I was like, okay, let's pretend we're going to go to Miami. I want the premium room. It's a little bit bigger. It's got a giant king size bed. It sleeps one to two people. And it's only $125 a night to stay two minute walk from the beach in Miami. Are you kidding? This is all geared towards younger travelers and it's big business. The World Tourism Organization said that travelers aged 15 to 29 accounted for an estimated 23% of all international travelers in 2015. So nearly a quarter of travelers 
are youth travelers and they spent over $280 billion traveling and staying in all these accommodations. So a lot of these brands are making an effort to offer these low cost rooms and even these dorm style rooms where you have a few bunk beds and people can kind of just stay in there. Hilton is also getting into some of this stuff. They have different properties where a lot of them are just smaller rooms, as you were saying, and then they do have a certain number of these shared rooms. Yeah, it's not just Generator that's getting into this style of hotel stay. There's a company called Freehand. They're based in New York and they've got upscale youth hostels in L.A., New York, Chicago, major U.S. cities. And like you said, Hilton, they just launched their first what they're calling an urban micro brand called Motto by Hilton. And they're referring to that as a hostel on steroids. And the focus here, Oscar, is getting rid of the room amenities and focusing on things like really cool restaurants and bars and hot coffee shops within the property. They're focusing their emphasis on experience-based pleasures rather than luxury comforts like a fluffy bed. This is kind of the trend, this cheaper stay and building out the restaurants and bars. But where these hostels on steroids differ from when you picture a European youth hostel in your head is, for the most part, these rooms are private. So you don't have to share with some random dude who hasn't showered in three weeks. You're going to (laughs) be staying with your friends. With the exception of Generator, they have female-only dorm sections where it's like you will possibly be sharing with strangers, but it's going to be another woman. Yeah, and that will be a lot more pleasing to maybe parents who are letting their high school-aged daughters going out on their own, traveling abroad or whatever, to feel a little more comfortable that they'll be in a female-only living situation there. I did the math in the female-only dorm room, because now I'm very curious. It's $25 a night per bed. There's four beds in a room. So potentially, if you wanted to stay in this room for one month, a 30-day stay, you'll end up paying only $750. Wow. That's That's, pretty good. That's less expensive than if you were to probably go like right next door on the same street to the Westin Hotel in Miami Beach, right on the water. That's two nights. For a cup for a few days. Yeah, exactly. Let's kind of paint the picture. What is it like to stay in one of these? So they have 24 hour service, which means there's always someone who works there available to you to help you out. And they've got towels in the rooms. They've all got private bathrooms. They've got the amenities like we discussed. And they also have events. So there, you may be staying on a weekend where Pitbull is performing at the pool. But what's really interesting to me, Oscar, was that you're not allowed to bring strangers into the hotels or excuse me, into the hostels. You can have anybody who's staying at the hostel hang out with you, but not in your bedroom. They can stay out with you in the the common spaces you can have guests. And that is interesting. I think that's very important to combat this notion of you're not safe in one of these settings because you're already sharing it with somebody else. And what if they bring somebody creepy back to the room or something? So that's good that they're eliminating that. So hopefully there is more of a sense of security there. I think I've passed these already. I like to have my own room and but the one in Miami, Oscar, it's a beautiful room. It's 125 bucks. Yeah, but if I can't bring anybody back, you know, I can't you got bring a wife. friends back. I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying that. So youth hostels expanding in the US, trying to shed these old identities. We'll see if they gain in popularity. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. This has to be my favorite story of the week. I'm a Southern California guy. I grew up here and I love Disneyland. I love going there. 
It is one of the happiest places on the earth. And we found this article in the Wall Street Journal about the big secret that Disney World and Disneyland have, that it's a favorite spot for people to scatter the ashes of their family members once they've passed. They think it's like one of the ultimate tributes that you could have there. Miranda, real quick, if you were going to have your ashes spread at Disneyland, where would you have them spread at? Probably... Indiana Jones, because that's my favorite ride. I would go on Space Mountain and I just want somebody to throw me up in the air so that it gets all over everyone and everything. (laughs) Aren't you worried they're going to sweep you up at the end of the night? That's what happens, actually. So we spoke to Eric Schwartzel. He's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and he spoke to several families who have actually done this. They were very forthright about it. They snuck the ashes in. They spread them out in different places. Disneyland holds a really special place in a lot of people's hearts, and it just makes sense that people would want to have it be their final resting place. So here's Eric Schwartzel with more about the big secret from Disneyland. I'm so glad to hear you say that it made a lot of sense to you. It made a lot of sense to me, too. It was not something I'd ever thought about, but whenever I heard that this was a popular place to spread ashes, it was like, oh, of course. People love going to Disneyland. It makes sense that some would want to spend eternity there. And when I started talking to the custodians who work in both parks, they told me, oh, yes, it's very much a thing. There have always been these rumors about it, but it does happen. And it's so much to the point that they have a code word for it. They say it's a HEPA cleanup. So if you are a <laughs> worker who sees what you suspect are human ashes, maybe left on the seat of a ride or something like that, you radio over and you say, we have a HEPA cleanup. And that means you need to grab the hypoallergenic vacuum because the custodians will then come by. And if they do indeed identify the substance as human ashes, they will suck them up in a vacuum and clean it up while everyone you know, leaves the premises and goes on to other rides before they can come back. Disney custodians say that it happens about once a month that they actually notice it. It could be happening a lot more. So that's a lot of frequency. We were talking about uh, really quick about how much it makes sense that people would want this to be part of their final resting place. In the article, you you detail somebody who said that they would go to Disneyland with their dad and he worked like the graveyard shift. But when he was at Disneyland, he was a completely different person, happy-go-lucky. And she was like, can we stay here forever? So it, it really means something to a lot of people to be in this location. Give us a couple examples of how people are spreading these ashes. Like what are they doing? You know, where are they doing it? All that stuff. I spoke with six families who have spread ashes at Disney parks, and they do follow a bit of a pattern. They know they're not supposed to do it, so (laughs) they have to get creative. Several of them smuggled the ashes in prescription pill bottles. You know, I would talk to one woman who said, you know, she had the very surreal experience of emptying her father's urn in the hotel bathroom into a pill bottle that she could then (laughs) smuggle past park security. Others will simply put them in Ziploc bags and put them at the bottom of a purse or a knapsack that that's gotten through security as well. And then once they're inside, if they want to maybe spread it on a specific ride, they might wait until the ride gets particularly dark so no one sees them. Other times, they'll just go to a flower bed or a part of the park that doesn't seem like there are a lot of people around. Now, I did speak with one woman who's in the story who, in 2009, spread the ashes of her mother. And at one point, while she was doing it, she was sort of overcome with grief. And she hopped over the barricade surrounding the lawn outside Cinderella's castle and ran across the grass, flinging them as she ran. Wow. I and mean, it's a pretty dramatic statement. And she 
says no one stopped her. And I have photos of this. It's there in the story, you know, so so it definitely happened. And so it's like, wow, if, if someone running across Cinderella's lawn flinging ashes doesn't get noticed. I mean, I can't imagine how many people do this and never get caught. But you're right that in talking to custodians, the consensus that I arrived at was that it happens about once a month. But I've heard stories of it happening more frequently. I've heard stories of there being some downtime where they might not have one for a while. But in my story alone, I had six examples ranging from 1996 to last week. How did you find these people? Like, how did they come forward? I mean, I I think the Parka says that if anybody is caught doing this, they'll be escorted off property. But I don't think there's been any arrests or anything related to this. So how did these people come forward to you? There haven't been any arrests that we know of. The Anaheim Police Department says they couldn't recall any arrests being made on this kind of thing. You know, the people that I spoke to, they were pretty public about the fact that they had spread ashes at Disney. So probably a point of pride at, you know, at this point. Yeah, it's a point of pride. It's also, I should say, like, even though I think most of them found a bit of a bit of humor in the whole act, they they definitely it was an extremely emotional experience and something that they also saw and interpreted as honoring their loved one's final wishes. So it was something that they were really touched by and, and actually quite eager to share with me. You've touched a little bit on where they spread these ashes a lot of times, flower beds, bushes, on the lawns, outside even in the park gates. <laughs> I love the quote. Someone said that the Haunted Mansion probably has so much human ashes in it that it's not even funny. And that's one of those places, obviously, we know what the Haunted Mansion ride is all about. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's spooky and whatnot. And it's like the perfect places to drop the ashes. It gives it all new meaning. You know, the next time I'm going to be there, I'm going to be like trying to look for human ashes there. Well, I take that as the ultimate compliment. I mean, I think, yes, I heard... So many examples that I can say safely say that human ashes have been spread all over these parks. The Haunted Mansion is definitely the most popular destination, but It's a Small World also had quite a strong showing. Right. Base Mountain, Pirates of the Caribbean, I mean... Really, if you think about it, there have probably been human ashes spread there. And I don't quite know why the the Haunted Mansion is so... I mean, obviously, it's on theme, right, for the practice. But in talking to people who work in the Haunted Mansion, they describe just a sort of general obsession among certain fans with the Haunted Mansion. I also think that it's probably strategically a pretty good spot because it's very dark. Right. And there are a lot of places where you can sort of inconspicuously do it. Knowing this now gives all these rides new meaning. When they find ashes and they have to go through the process of locating it, cleaning it up, they'll close the rides and say they're closed for technical difficulties. And I've always I've seen rides close for technical difficulties before. It could be something mechanical, but this is also one of those other reasons. So what's that process when they identify what they think it is and then how do they go through about cleaning it? So this is a process that will kickstart on rides like the Haunted Mansion. So say a ride comes around, people leave, and they see some what they think are, are human ashes on the seats. They will clear out the premises. They'll radio over for a HEPA cleanup. They often do tell people that there are technical difficulties that they need to attend to. And then they will hand out fast passes to people because, you know, you're standing in line for an hour and then suddenly they say the, the ride has to shut down and you have to leave. you got to give them something or else people are going to get upset. So then the, the vacuums come in, they suck it up, you know, and a manager will often ride the ride by themselves so that they can look and see, like, are there any ashes anywhere in the ride that we need to go and identify and and sweep up and then resume business. A number of the people I spoke to also dumped ashes in the water of these rides, like on Pirates and on It's a Small World. So the water, I think, is probably a pretty impossible 
place to to discover it, you're not going to see that, especially on some of those darker rides. Yeah, I mean, it's a really fun read. It's perfect for Halloween. Eric Schwartzel, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you. And if you do see any ashes on the Haunted Mansion, please call me so I can do a follow-up. <laughs> I definitely will. Great, thank, thank you. you. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.